Welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. Today's episode was originally published on December 15th, 2017, and we wanted to play it now because news continues to come out, including new disclosures today about Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito receiving lavish gifts from wealthy, politically connected donors. You know, just because they're good friends. Today's episode looks at how the oligarchs and big business consciously seek to undermine democracy to bring about their vision of market fundamentalism and rule by the rich. Sources include The Majority Report, On the Media, Backstory, The Young Turks, and Belabored. Let's talk a little bit about what public choice economics is. This is where uh, Buchanan sort of, I guess, started mm-hmm. and realized, like, hey, I, I'm going to get fundamentally more anti-democratic in some respects, it seems to me. But, yeah. but, but, but start with that. Explain that to us. Okay, so public choice economics is actually um, uh, a broader current of political economy, and there are some liberals who see value in public choice ideas. For example, Cass Sunstein, Obama's, you know, he was called mm-hmm. the regulatory czar, wrote a book called Nudge, you know, about how you could use knowledge of incentives to shape good public policy. So I do want to make clear that it's a, you know, it's it's um, uh, it's not just a project of the right, but Buchanan's particular stream of that that larger current of public choice thought was what he and his followers began to call the Virginia School of Political Economy. And in his hands, it was very much a set of ideas to um, to basically bring this Calhoun-like notion that the population does, divides into makers, uh, the people who are now called job creators too, right? Uh, makers and takers, and that you have to be aware of the takers and that they are going to exploit the makers through their political power and the um, ability of government to transfer resource, you know, to transfer tax revenues from one group to another. Uh, so, um, so Buchanan thought long and hard about those issues and ended up uh, arguing for what he called a constitutional revolution. He said that no government in the world, no constitution in the world was adequately protective of the rights of the minority. And by the minority, he did not mean, you know, uh, racial minorities. He had never shown concern about them. He meant economic minorities, uh, the wealthy minority. No constitution was adequately protective of their liberty and their minority rights. And so he made his life's mission from the mid-1970s on what he called constitutional economics, figuring out how you could change the rules of governance and ultimately the constitutional rules in order to uh, essentially undercut the model of government that um, we knew over the course of the 20th century. You know, a government that does things like uh, protects workers' rights, that um, intervenes to regulate the environment, that uh, engage, you know, that 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 uh, has anti-discrimination enforcement, all those kinds of things that you know, uh, um, social insurance for uh, older retired people so that they don't go poor in their old age if they don't have savings accounts, all of those kinds of things that most of us think of as a good society, right, and a really, really good use of our government were things that really irritated Buchanan and these other libertarians. And, and you see that, again, in what's playing out in this, this health care legislation. One of the Koch people said that um, 
that that uh, the Senate's plan was a slight nip and tuck of Obama's health care law, and he described what they were doing as immoral. That's what they mean by immoral. That seems, you know, in, inscrutable to most of us, um, you know, when we're talking about people's lives who might be saved by having access to health care. But for these arch libertarians, it's immoral for the government to tax me as a person of wealth in order to make sure that you as a person who did not save does not die. Well, what's fascinating about this, too, is it seems to me like the the advent of constitutions I uh-huh. mean, is fundamentally at odds with his project. At least it was until he figured out some way of of manipulating it. Right. I mean, the reason why we have constitutions is because we no longer have sort of feudal systems that are dominated by uh, those people who have a corner on whatever the currency is in that era. Maybe it was, you know steel mm-hmm. swords uh and uh mm-hmm. you know uh, chariots right. uh and uh, the gold to pay for it or whatever it was but i mean that's that's the dilemma is that once you have a constitution once you have a democracy you mm-hmm. are fu- fundamentally run running contrary to this guy and i should say it seems to me uh, charles Koch, and i would say also uh the the montpelleron society yeah. i mean just remind mm-hmm. people about that because it seems to me this is this is the this is where uh Buchanan once he gets sort of read into the that uh those mm-hmm. group of folks where he becomes more fundamentally anti-democratic. Yes. Yes, uh absolutely. Um uh all things you raise are are uh spot on. Uh as far as the Mont Pelerin Society, yes, it was founded in nineteen forty seven, just as Buchanan was in graduate school, and his mentor was the only American who was among the, the triumvirate of founders. So it was also Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises and this guy named Frank Knight, who was then the most famous member of the Chicago school. Mil- Milton Friedman was just you know, was a young new faculty member who was there as an add on, uh but not particularly significant at that point. But anyway, this Mont Pelerin Society is an in- invitation-only uh, international society, mostly um, uh, European and American in the beginning, but now worldwide. Uh, and it included thinkers like Buchanan, you know, um, Hayek, Friedman, etc., um, and uh, businessmen, um, very arch-libertarian businessmen. Charles Koch joined in 1970, for example, um, and uh, and these right-wing foundations that subsidized the whole effort. And so originally it started as a kind of a talk shop, you know, for people who wanted what they called the free society, but which many of us would would call free market fundamentalism. but by the end, you know, in the recent years, you know, by the by the late 1990s, it really had become, um, it seems, kind of taken over by Charles Koch and like-thinking billionaires. Even some people who had been part of the early effort were complaining about that and retreating from it. And Buchanan and Koch and these others actually uh, discuss some of the things that they're going to be doing at George Mason to advance this audacious project to change our uh, society and government. They discuss that at, at the Mont Pelerin Society according to documents I found in Buchanan's papers. So, uh, and, and also by the late uh, 1970s, the Montpellerine people realized that they would be a permanent minority. And again, I have documents that show that. And therefore, they start talking about, well, how do we get, you know, we may have to get non-democratic um, uh, governments in order to uh, achieve what it is that we want. And they're very explicit about that. And actually, Buchanan helps get such a constitution in Chile. And I have a chapter yeah. on that. But in terms of your point about 
about the the constitutions. Uh, yeah, another thing I think is really interesting here is that you know this whole apparatus, and by now the Coke money and the influence is is you know it's not just in his um, personal project, the Cato Institute, you know from the 1970s. It's the Heritage Foundation. It's you know the te- it's just like you know I could name 15 right off the tip of my tongue, right. you know, but I won't take up the time. But it's throughout this apparatus, and what's really interesting is they present themselves as Madisonians, right? They say, oh, we're the people who are supporting the founder's vision, and, you know, we just want to prevent these people who have hijacked our government and, you know, destroyed our liberty and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, the kind of the vision of government they're advocating is Calhounian, and Madison himself said it would be the end of free government everywhere. If this, you know, I forget the exact quote, but it's in the book. Madison said that, you know, this would be the end of, 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 of the American experiment of we the people if ideas like Calhoun's were allowed to prevail, that it was based on such a radical uh, misinterpretation and rerouting of um, the constitutional project in America. And I think that's interesting, too, because, you know, a lot of your readers will know, I mean, the U.S. Constitution is a pretty conservative document, right? And Madison was very concerned with protecting property rights. So our Constitution, as it is, protects property rights to a degree that no other Constitution in the world does. It has four veto points, which is unparalleled uh, for modern constitutional democracies. And yet these guys are saying it doesn't have enough protections of their interest, as the rest of us are saying, what are we going to do about the skyrocketing inequality in our society and the unresponsiveness of our system, given current interpretations of the Constitution? After the House vote to repeal and replace Obamacare, the President and House Speaker Paul Ryan can both now claim they've kept their promise to deliver Americans from the tyranny of the nanny state into the efficient hands of the free market. A real, vibrant marketplace with competition and lower premiums for families. That's what the American Health Care Act is all about. The vote was also, at least superficially, a triumph for conservative orthodoxy. Small government over big, low taxes over high, states' rights over national government, and so on. But that orthodoxy did not spring fully formed into post-World War II America. It was painstakingly constructed over the decades as a means to achieve the ultimate goal, the preservation of capital for really rich people. Jane Mayer is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right. A lot of what you think of as the modern-day machinery of right-wing ideology all goes back to the imposition of an income tax in this country, which happens around 1916. There was a great uproar on the part of some of the wealthiest families in the country who didn't want to pay income taxes, and a deal was struck. Congress told these families, if you give your money away to charitable organizations, we will give you a tax break. But the gifts have to be in the public's good. And a lot of what you're looking at now, think tanks and and much else in politics, actually is set up as sort of an arm of philanthropy. Are we speaking of the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation? 
and similar philanthropically funded organizations? Absolutely. The Rockefeller Foundation is the granddaddy of them all. When the Rockefeller family wanted to set up its own personal family foundation, it was incredibly controversial. There was bipartisan opposition from across the board. All of these congressmen and senators said, this is an undemocratic thing to have a rich family be able to spend its money on public policy and get a tax deduction. They saw foundations as unaccountable to anybody but the super rich and playing an undemocratic role in the midst of our democratic society. Were these big capitalists indeed figuring out a way to influence public policy? Well, the first step towards politicized philanthropy in the view of many people was the Ford Foundation. And it wasn't for quite some time. It was really in the 1960s when it got involved in education policy, all tied up with teachers unions and with integration and all those issues. And the right wing made a lot of noise about it and the Ford Foundation backed off. But the right wing also learned from it and soon started pouring money into its own philanthropies that became intensely political. The thrust of this conversation is going to be on the Heritage Foundation that undertakes to understand and promote conservative policy and ideology. But it wasn't the first think tank. Who were the first think tanks? The early think tanks were Brookings, which was actually founded by a Republican who wanted explicitly to have people of different points of views gather together to do scholarly work and try to solve society's problems. He wanted many points of view. The Russell Sage Foundation was also quite early. They were trying to put the best minds to work to solve society's problems. Non-ideological, non-partisan presumably legitimate academic scholarship. Right. And they thought of themselves very much as neutral and apolitical, really. Many of the solutions that the earlier think tanks, including Brookings, came up with involved answers that involved government activism of some sort or another. So when the right finally weighs in with its own version, they attacked these organizations as being liberal, but the organizations were not set up to be liberal or anything else from their own standpoint. So to the extent that the political right believed that think tanks like the Brookings Institution had aligned with progressive ideas, this gives us heritage. By about 1971, some of the leaders of the biggest businesses in America became alarmed they watched the anti-Vietnam War movement taking on the companies that were involved in the defense industry, the consumer movement of Ralph Nader, and the environmental movement that was beginning to call for all kinds of regulations on pollution. And you get this kind of call to arms by Lewis Powell, who was then a lawyer from Richmond. He wasn't mm. yet on the Supreme Court. He wrote a paper for the Chamber of Commerce and he said, big business, if you don't get organized, we're going to lose our way of life. The enemy is not the kids who are on the streets protesting. It's not hippies or yippies. The enemy is elite public opinion. And if we want to fight back, we have to change the way the elite public opinion is formed in this country. All of the instruments that form public opinion, meaning the media, the pulpits, academia, science, the courts, 
and public policy. So the creation of right-wing think tanks starting in the late 1970s was an answer to Lewis Powell's call to arms. The people who set up the Heritage Foundation were literally talking about this Lewis Powell memo and saying, we've got to do something, we've got to spend money, we've got to fight back. Joseph Coors, who was heir to a brewing company in Colorado, sent a letter to his senator, Gordon Allett, and said, I've got money, how do I spend it? And an aide who was working for Allett saw this letter and his name was Paul Weirich, and he hmm. was one of the two founders of the Heritage Foundation, and he said, I've got an idea. We're going to set up this think tank. And Richard Mellon Scaife, the arch-conservative Pittsburgh billionaire, came in at approximately the same time with approximately the same idea. That's absolutely right. Coors came in with the first funding for the Heritage Foundation. Coors was a John Birch Society member, and so coming from the far right, and people said at Heritage, he gives six-packs, but Richard Mellon Scaife gives cases. Hmm. He was just overwhelmingly the, the major funder of the early Heritage Foundation. I think he gave $23 million in its, its first 10 years or so. At that time, just a phenomenal amount of money. Now, there's two ways for an institution that wants to influence policy to behave. One is to do bona fide scholarship, and that scholarship should inform recommendations for public policy. Another way is to determine what public policy you want and then kind of manufacture the scholarship to suit. Is that what Heritage did? Right. Eric Wanner, who was the chairman of the Russell Sage Foundation, said, Heritage turned the model on its head. When the Heritage Foundation was started, there's sort of an origination myth. Edwin Fulner, Jr., who was one of the co-founders and is now coming back to run it again, he was working in Congress as an aide, and he and Paul Weirich, his friend, there was some kind of legislation that they were unhappy with, and the current think tanks that had existed at the time only weighed in after the fact. The American Enterprise Institute was a conservative think tank that already existed, but it didn't feel its place was to get involved and lobby the congressman before the legislation was voted on. And these two young aides thought, well, that's stupid. You have no effect if you're not going to get in the congressman's faces before they take the vote. And so when they founded the Heritage Foundation, it was explicitly to lobby. They weren't just a think tank. They were, as they call themselves, a do tank. It's kind of an unfortunate term, but they've used <laughs> You know, I have a friend who was, back in the day, a Soviet emigre. And back in Lithuania, in Soviet Lithuania, he was an econometrician. He had to fill his model with input-output data that was entirely invented by communist <laughs> bureaucrats. He was told what the outcome should be, then had to come up with the raw data to produce that outcome. Is it that bad? People like Steve Clemens, who worked in sort of conservative think tank worlds, and David Brock, who was originally on the right and is now on the left, but who was inside those think tanks. What these people who were firsthand observers inside would talk about is that the scholarship was corrupted. And they do describe that. Now, I mean, I have to say I'm not willing to think the liberal side has all the answers and that it's always academically honest either. I'm sure that these things happen on all sides. It's just that the think tanks on the right were built for political purposes. One of the areas where this matters the most, of course, is when it comes to issues like global warming, where there's so much money 
on one side of the scholarship. The whole fossil fuel industry is trying to fund research that says global warming is either not real or if it's real, it's not bad and nobody should do anything about it because the solutions are worse than the problem. There's just endless amounts of that kind of phony science. And it follows very much in the wake of the same kind of phony science that was paid for by the tobacco industry, which for years said that cancer is not caused by smoking. You would get out of these right-wing think tanks theories like supply-side economics, which claimed that if you cut everybody's taxes, more money will come into the government somehow because the economy will thrive. Well, I mean, we've had a few experiments in it now, and it hasn't worked that way. And yet remains an article of faith in conservative thought. It's a zombie theory that can't be killed (laughs) because it keeps being revived by these think tanks. And also it serves the purposes of the donors to the think tanks. All right. So let's just say I'm really mad about the Civil Rights Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And I want to build myself a great influence machine. How do I do it? Well, that's pretty much the question that faced Charles and David Koch, among others. And they were engineers who had graduated with both undergraduate and graduate degrees from MIT. And they looked at taking over American politics as a great engineering challenge. And they decided you couldn't really rely on just funding candidates because the candidates are just going to spout sort of conventional wisdom. And so what they set out to do was change what the conventional wisdom in the country was by setting up think tanks, funding intellectuals, funding academic centers. They now fund something like 350 of them in universities and colleges across the country funding media organizations and disputing science by coming up with counter science studies. All of that is how you do it. And that's really how they did it. I think it might be instructive to look at just one little point within the ecosystem to see how interconnected it all is. There was a time when Dartmouth was just one of the Ivy League colleges. Then there was a strategic investment in academic centers at Dartmouth, which became one of the hotbeds of conservative thinking, at least on the East Coast. Dartmouth's a good example. The Dartmouth Review in particular started getting money from outside organizations, and it was an on-campus publication that became kind of an incubator for many of the more famous conservative propagandists and writers right now. Dinesh D'Souza came out of there and Laura Ingram and many others. It was a directed effort by funders on the right to try to have centers in the universities that would cultivate conservatives, that would then go on and become leaders. In your book, you quote Steve Wasserman, who is editor-at-large at Yale University Press, one of the bastions, I suppose, of the liberal coastal elite, lamenting that wealthy liberal donors simply aren't as keen to make intellectual investments as the right-wingers. Well, I thought that was a really good point. You have to give conservatives some credit here. They funded an intellectual movement, and they did it over 40 years. They played a long game funding people writing books, people like Charles Murray, people like George Gilder. And the Democrats were much more short-term in their thinking. They maybe put money into 
particular political races. But they didn't really look at this whole thing as funding an infrastructure that was built to last and change the way the country thinks. Because politics follows the money, it goes after the money, it secures the money, and it does the bidding of the money, we now have a a legislature that represents the interests of this dark money. Talk about being out of touch. It's not the media. It's the actual Congress that is out of touch with the thinking of mainstream America. Is that observation correct? I think it is in many ways. I would argue that part of the reason Trump got elected was he went in a different direction from what many of these think tanks, for instance, have been pushing. They were pushing free trade, open immigration, and they were also pushing for privatization of things like Social Security. And if you remember, I don't know if he'll stick to his promises, but he promised to strengthen Social Security rather than gutting it. He talked about infrastructure spending, which is very popular with voters and very unpopular with big right-wing donors who want to shrink big government as they see it. So, you know, Trump saw an opening there, and I would say he exploited it pretty well. We're going to start today's show with a guy who gets a lot of calls at work. The calls really are of one or two varieties. One is, I am in trouble. The FBI knocked on my door. Uh, What do I do? This is Elliot Burke, a lawyer in Washington, D.C. Burke specializes in congressional ethics. Or, hey, I've assumed some office or we're taking on some new initiative. We want to make sure we don't have any problems moving forward. Burke helps elected officials and staffers figure out if what they're doing or what they've done is corrupt. He's counseled plenty of heavy hitters, including former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. Now, whether or not you're corrupt seems pretty straightforward, right? But it's not. This, after all, is Washington, D.C. Burke says that a few years ago, a congressional staffer came to him with a predicament. Did she face any ethics issues in accepting... An engagement ring. If your boyfriend or girlfriend wants to propose to you and gives you a ring, technically speaking, that needs to be pre-cleared by the ethics committees. Why? Because members of Congress and staffers are not allowed to receive gifts worth more than $50. Unless, says Burke, the recipient can prove the gift is from a personal friend. That can get complicated in the highly networked world of Washington. Sometimes personal relationships come under scrutiny. I had a conversation with one of the ethics councils in which I was told that it was actually better if you were living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, because then it shows a history of sort of sharing the rent and, you know, reciprocal gifts back and forth than if you were living apart. Burke says that a lot of these convoluted rules are the products of scandals that have rocked Capitol Hill over the years. Most of what we still see are knee-jerk reactions to scandal that creates very arcane and, I think, impractical rules to address something that had proper enforcement been in play. You know, the laws on the books and the rules on the books could have addressed the situation. One example, says Burke, is the reform passed in the wake of the Jack Abramoff lobbying scandal a few years back. 
Abramoff, you may remember, was a powerful lobbyist who lavished gifts on members of Congress in exchange for votes that benefited his clients. Right after passing this particular set of reforms, the House Ethics Committee sent out a memo clarifying some of the new rules. In this memo, they said that a member may accept a $15 baseball cap with a corporate logo of a company, but they could not accept a $12 coffee mug from the same company with the same logo. Uh, I don't know if a coffee mug has a greater utility than a baseball cap, but while we appreciate the clarity on that point, uh, it still can be very frustrating to try to explain to somebody that, you know, that's where they ended up. Now, Burke does believe there should be strong ethics guidelines on the books, but the current patchwork system of rules also means that he spends a lot of time parsing the difference between mugs and caps, while truly questionable deals are perfectly legal. Consider this example. Under current rules, a lobbyist is not allowed to take a lawmaker out to lunch, unless the lunch isn't just a lunch. They can turn around and take that member of Congress as a candidate to lunch as a fundraiser and pass him a $500 check. Uh, That's perfectly permissible, but I'm not sure from a civic perspective that that's the most sensible environment to, to operate. We know what's uh, wrong with the Republican Party. They take donor money uh, and they give them tax cuts. That's the whole point of the Republican Party. Uh, But luckily, recently, they have made it uh, incredibly obvious. Gary Cohn, the top economic advisor for Donald Trump, said in regards to the tax cuts, the most excited group out there are big CEOs about our tax plan. Yeah, of course, that's because that's who you serve. They're going to get giant, enormous tax cuts for their companies, which then they're gonna use to buy back stocks and to increase uh, the the bonuses that they get through their own stock options. Okay, uh, but thank you for admitting it, we appreciate it. Uh, Representative Chris Collins, Republican of New York has said, my donors are basically saying, get it done or don't ever call me again. Again, thank you very much for clearly outlining the legalized bribery and out of control corruption that we have here in America and certainly within the Republican Party. Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina has said, the financial contributions will stop if we don't get the tax cuts. In other words, we were always lying when we said we care about the deficit. This is gonna add one and a half trillion dollars to the debt. We were lying, we don't care about the debt. Oh, The middle class, no, we're gonna raise taxes on at least a third of the middle class. Not only has independent groups said that, the Republicans have acknowledged it. So no, no, we're increasing taxes on the rest of you to get our donors tax cuts, unreal, right? And then finally, Stephen Law, uh, who is working for the donors themselves says, donors would be mortified if we didn't live up to what we've committed to on uh, tax reform. He's actually the head of the Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which helps Mitch McConnell. But he, I say he works for the donors because he don- funnels the donor money to the Republican senators. So he is admitting they will be mortified if they don't get their tax cuts, which is why they bribe the senators and the politicians in the first place. Now, in in America, we have an insane system where bribery is legal. You call it campaign contributions and independent expenditures. Now, don't worry guys, the Democrats, of course, are the opposing party and they are going to stand up to them. So here's Senator Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, saying they're paymasters, if you will, the hard, hard right, the Koch brothers, all they wanna do is cut taxes. They don't care about the deficit, they don't care about the country, they don't care about the middle class, they just want their taxes reduced. 
and they run the Republican Party. That, now that is exactly right, I'm super glad he said that. So now we're gonna go to a Democratic donor, interesting, Stephen Klubeck. He is a CEO and he is in that millionaire billionaire class, but don't say that because that'll make him very upset. Now, we know what the Republican Party is about, but let's find out what the Democratic Party is about. So here's one of their top donors explaining. Is it the right message that the Democrats are going with? It's so effing wrong. Whoa. I've talked to Schumer, I've talked to Wyden, I've talked to Pelosi. And said what? And I said, if you use the term billion again, I'm done. Why? Because it's aspirational. I didn't start with anything. Just penalize everyone that's done well. We all want to do well. And we should be the party of doing well. We should be a party of business and leadership. And it is very, very disturbing when I hear the millionaire or billionaire word. And I told them to stop it, knock it off. Mm. Well, now we see uh, where the donor class stands in the Democratic Party. Don't you even say the words millionaire or billionaire. Do you understand your marching orders, Chuck Schumer? That gave that fiery quote, no, 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 don't do that. Nancy Pelosi and the others. Know your role, shut your mouth, because the millionaire and billionaire class now are so arrogant that they'll go on TV and go, what did I buy these guys for? I bought them so they shut their mouth when we talk about tax cuts. You can fight on other issues, go ahead and distract people with uh, you know, other uh, social issues, cultural issues. But when it comes to tax cuts, we will have our cuts. He says, don't penalize us. Who the hell's talking about penalizing you? We're talking about whether you should get another round of trillions of dollars in tax cuts and make the middle class pay for it. So if you thought it was just the Republican Party, you got another thought coming to you. If you set up a system where they are allowed to take unlimited money from rich people and from corporations, both sides will take unlimited money from rich people and corporations. Now, luckily, not the whole Democratic Party is like that. I would say 99.9% of the Republican Party is at the national level is completely corrupt. They will do whatever their donors tell them. And right now, they're bragging about it. The Democrats are closer to 80%. It's a rough estimation. If you want to say it's a little higher, I'm not going to argue with you. The problem is the system. You cannot allow for money in politics. If you allow private financing, they will serve people like Stephen Klubeck, who privately financed their elections. You have to have public financing so they serve the public interest. This is so obvious, but the reason the Democrats don't fight on it is because they have the same donors. So let's find out a little bit about Klubeck. He gave well over $2 million to the Democratic Party last year alone, including a million dollar donation to Hillary Clinton's Super PAC Priorities USA. Here's a little screen grab of the million bucks that he gave to Priorities USA Action. That was their Super PAC. That among other things attacked Bernie Sanders for daring to talk about the millionaire and billionaire class. The Klubecks of the world came along and said, "Oh no, 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 I'm gonna give you a million dollars so you penalize him. Make him stop talking about the corruption, okay? We're in charge here. So here's more from Klubeck. Then are you worried that the Democratic Party is going too far to the left? So much so, it drives me nuts. So much so, it would make me quit the party. And I've made it very clear, I'll cut your money off. And others will do the same. We've had enough. Okay, we so need a new brand. 
I, I can tell you that if we go far left, I'm out. I'm out. We need middle ground. So when you tell the Democratic leadership this, when you meet with Wyden and Pelosi and Schumer, what do they say to you? Well, so far, they've given me great signals that they're willing to participate and get there. We shall see. We shall see. Okay, first of all, two words, good riddance. So the Democrats and their leadership and the Democratic establishment and elites, they had to kiss this guy's ass. So when he says, I'm out, you better do as you're told. They go, okay, 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 no, no, we're not left, we're not left, we're not progressives. We, we promise we'll do whatever you want, Mr. Billionaire. Just as Democrats don't take corporate money and they don't take big donor money. So we don't care, he's used to making all of them heal. He goes on national television and says, we'll cut your money off and, and the other donors agree with me. And the pathetic Democratic establishment heals. God damn it, isn't it about time you get real progressives, the uncorrupted? You don't take big donor money so you could tell guys like this to fuck off. You're supposed to represent your voters, not your donors. One more from this prick. I'm just as caustic and arrogant and aggressive on the Democratic side. So, you know, Trump-esque, Trump-liked. But I'm willing to fight for democratic principles, and I'm not going to give up. And hopefully, we'll get our shit together. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, guess who else fights? We fight, okay? And we don't think the democratic principles you're talking about is more money for millionaires and billionaires. We don't agree, we don't agree. We don't think that the Trump tax plan where you raise taxes on the middle class and give it to the rich is a good idea. We think it's a miserable idea. We believe that a financial transaction tax is both smart in regulating Wall Street and regulating the risk taking and also provides excellent funding for education and the American dream for the next generation. There are many things we don't agree on. We think that everyone in the country should have Medicare. We're talking about bare minimum basic coverage. Yes, everyone should have that so they don't die in the street. If you don't agree with that, get the hell out of the party. You're used to being the boss, you're used to being in charge because as you said, the Democratic leadership is giving you great signals. Well, Stephen, we're gonna defeat that leadership. We're gonna bring in justice Democrats, and then nobody's gonna give a shit what you think. And then you can get all aggressive all you want in your goddamn corner, and you can go vote for Republicans like Trump all you want. You wanna fight, let's fight. But no way do I agree to this guy giving orders to progressives on how they should help Republicans with tax cuts. Your book is about two big failures, right? Your book is about the failure of capitalism. Your book is also about the failure of democracy. And, you know, I used to joke back in the good old George W. Bush days that the way to actually understand what was being proposed was to substitute the word capitalism whenever George Bush said democracy. And I forget what the other one was. Um, but, you know, and so we've been told for a very long time, and I remember this from, you know, the old 1990s that capitalism was the most democratic system ever. And not just in the Cold War era, but in literally in the 1990s when, you know, investing in the stock market was equal to democracy. Um, and so it seems like one of the cases that you're making in this book is actually not that capitalism and democracy don't work well together, but that 
literally at this point, the capitalism that we live under is fundamentally incompatible with democracy. Let me put it in a very similar way, but to say that capitalism cannot be good without democracy and neither can socialism, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is it is the lack of democracy that, that hands our power away to somebody else without any kind of, any kind of return on it. And, and the crisis in America is that we tell ourselves we have a functional democracy. We, cer- we certainly do not. We well, have who, the- who tells us, John? Who tells us? Oh, you know what? The fact of the matter is we do. We, the people, actually still have immense faith in this thing. And it's, to, it's a wonderful thing. I see it all the time. You know, not everybody, but a lot of people actually believe that somehow that's the way to fix stuff, right? And what they don't recognize is the extent to which we have structurally created barriers to it working. And so you end up with, yes, immense numbers of people kind of extracting themselves from the process. I'll give you the example. What is the measure of a successful democracy? Number one, its simplest measure is participation. Does everybody think it's worth being a part of it? Do you want to actually, you know, jump in the game? And do you think something's going to come of this? Well, in America, we've actually had an election on democracy, right? On whether our democracy works to a level that people would say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And in presidential elections, about half of us, a little over, we do a little better in in a good election season, but roughly half of us don't vote or are barred from voting or are undermining their efforts to vote. But huge numbers of people don't vote. And where you get to the real stuff, the real meat of the matter, the people that make day-to-day decisions about your lives down in state elections and local elections, you know, local elections around this country are in absolute crisis. The turnout levels are so bad, so small, that, that it's like barely notable. I mean, it's, it, it's, this is a big, big deal. And it's exactly what Ben Bagdikian predicted in 1997 in one of his intros to Media Monopoly. Ben Bagdikian said, if you start to cull out local journalism across this country, if you close newspapers, if you close down newsrooms, if you keep cutting down the flow of information and giving people a, a decent amount of information at the top level, but nothing about where they live, right? They will slowly begin to participate less and less and less. Do you know, I cover politics for a living. I go across this country. Do you know what people say to me all the time? They say, these are people involved in politics. You know, they say, our number one problem is no one anymore knows who their city council member is or who their school board member is or when the election is. And, and, and I say, well, yeah, but people were always imperfect. They said, no, 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 no. It used to be an election, even a lo- every local election. It was sort of a festival. It was announced in advance. There was a theater that went with it. There was all sorts of reality. As we have changed our media system in this country, we have done all sorts of things that extract people from the process. And this gets to this guy's thing, which is a really important thing. In a good democracy, in a functional democracy, people say, oh, I got a problem. I need to solve this problem. Now, if you're very, very rich and you have a problem, in this society, you have a lot of ways to solve it. You can buy your way out of it. You can buy a politician. You can shape the policy debate. All sorts of opportunities. But if you've got nothing or almost nothing in this society, your ways of going up and changing, the, changing things, of addressing it, seem very, very limited. We ask ourselves why turnout is so low among certain groups in society. I would suggest to you an analysis that says one of the reasons their turnout is so low is because they genuinely don't believe that they can affect any change. And... Why is turnout so high among wealthy folks? Wealthy folks do tend to vote because um, this is a fun, it's like icing on the cake. You've bought the politicians. Now I think I'll actually, yeah, you know, sort of like close the deal. I'll vote for them too. But <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is 
we are we are in crisis as a democracy. We should understand that. And the measure of the crisis this year is the fact that the most successful political message of this year is I'm against them all. And I, I hear this wonderful thing. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are debating themselves, debating with one another about who's more establishment, right? And and well, and Hillary Clinton say, well, Bernie Sanders, he's served as a mayor and he's been in Congress and stuff like that. So he's part of the establishment too. And it's it's this notion that that you have to find some way to say even the 74-year-old Democratic Socialist from Vermont is too much a part of the establishment in America. This is that's that's last stage politics, right? That's not that's not the start of something new. That's the end of something old. That is that is trying to tell people that um, the best response to the crisis is to believe that everything everything's what they don't like. The best response to the crisis is to think about why people don't believe democracy works for them, and why it's so relevant to this book is that we are coming toward a moment where our only way out is great big democracy. We talk way too much about big data, big business, big money. We talk all way too little about big democracy. And I will promise you this. If we don't have big democracy in this country very soon, we will be the feudal serfs of corporate capital. Those of us who aren't already. So you kind of took the wind out of my sails talking about Ben Bagdikian and the, the media monopoly and this... First, I actually am going to give a shout out to Andy Mendelson, who has uh, taught me in journalism school and had me reading Nichols and McChesney. But one of the things that you're arguing in this book to try to fix things is that we need to rebuild the infrastructure of democracy. And media, of course, is one of those things. Well, we're talking, you know, we're, we're, we're doing an interesting walk here where we are. We're telling you about a lot of the, the problems we have before we talk about the core problem, yeah. which is good. And then as we talk about how we get out of this, because it's all this is, this is a happy this is a happy story. But. Um, the, this is the interesting thing about America. Thomas Jefferson was an incredibly imperfect president. And he's frankly an incredibly imperfect guy. Yes. Um, you know, all men are created equal, problematic even there, because, you know, not everybody's a guy. Um, problematic also because you had a little bit of a, you seem to have a blind spot as regards all the slavery, slavery issue. So, um, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you Jefferson was the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I will tell you this. Jefferson thought a lot about how the American experiment might improve. I take my, my lessons about Jefferson from Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, you know, we, we looked at Jefferson not for what he did always, but for what he told us we could do. And this is one of the most interesting things that Jefferson said. He said that one of the worst things you could do to the next generation is to lock it into a constitution from a previous generation. To say that, you know, we, you must live your life under the set of rules developed by people who treated illness by, by bleeding themselves and, you know, who accepted, who accepted human bondage and, you know, who literally, literally traveled, you know, by foot because they had no other means of transportation. With all due respect, some things have changed since then. And yet we are locked into a political system and a political structure that still responds to rapid 21st century change with all sorts of barriers to making any kind of response functional and quick and, and wise and inclusive. And so we end up with this situation. I, I've always believed the story of America is the story of expanding democracy. It's a wondrous story. I mean, you, tiny number. The people in this room, this, if you had a congressional election at the founding of this country, the people in this room would have been sufficient to, to choose. You'd be the, 
the wealthy planters who had gathered in a room in Williamsburg, Virginia, to choose, or some town in Virginia, down a little south of there, to choose between James Madison and James Monroe. And, of course, the women couldn't vote. The people of color couldn't vote. In some cases, religious minorities couldn't vote. Um, and certainly, poor people couldn't vote, right? So you had everybody on the outside looking in. And they say, the histories of that time, they say that when an election was held, you would hear a cheer go up from the people outside if somebody they liked got elected. And they actually were engaged enough to watch it. They were full-on spectators. Politics was a sport. And you were very, very engaged. And you actually had favorites, right? So it's not like these are stupid people. These are not like these are disengaged people. It's not like these are people that aren't a part of things. It's just they're not allowed to have any say. Well, we built beyond that, right? We opened things up. We brought more people in. But what I would argue is that in the last 50 years, we, you know, where we actually started to achieve something akin to full democracy in this country, then we started to elect or erect a whole new set of barriers. And it's not just voter ID laws or all the other things that we talk about so much, which are completely legitimate concerns. And my friend Ari Berman's wrote, written a brilliant book about, you know, trying to renew the Voting Rights Act and, and all sorts of struggles there. It's not just money in politics. Uh, Bob and I have written books about money in politics and dollarocracy and, and these things. These are, these are all relevant. But we have fundamental structural flaws that make democracy not function in America. And we have some, we have people in the room here tonight who've worked on some of those structural flaws and tried to address them. And what I would suggest to you is this is huge stuff. We write a lot in the book about when this country was still young and when this country still believed in the 1940s and the 1960s, 1970s. And in those days, Conversations about democratic infrastructure were everywhere. People were talking about democratic infrastructure all the time. Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his speeches about, you know, literally, you know, a, a second bill of rights. And he talked about literally how you would make democracy work. And do you know what he said? We got to have economic democracy along with political democracy because the great crisis of our times in his era was that decisions about the economy Decisions about our economic life had been pulled away from the people, and thus they were being made on high by elites. Roosevelt said of those elites, I welcome their hatred. I'm ready to take them on. The people loved him for that. Now, it happened when, when Roosevelt outlined a second Bill of Rights, he didn't say that democracy was simply about you know, having elections. He said democracy was about having the, the resources, the capacity in your life, the job, the work, the housing, the health care, all of these other things that freed you to participate fully and to really to be fully engaged in our political life. And he said there were these were barriers, too. It's wonderful when you study where Roosevelt was at. And you know what the interesting thing is? We took him seriously. And so as we move forward in the 50s and the 60s, what you saw was expansion of democratic participation. But you also saw addressing huge issues, the poverty of the elderly with Medicare, the poverty of, you know, so many folks with Medicaid, the war on poverty itself influenced by Michael Harrington, Michael Harrington walking around the White House, a Philip Randolph, one of the great socialists in American history, you know, sitting in the Oval Office with the president of the United States, people really talking about radical changes in our economic life to make real our, our politics, to make our politics consequential. It got so far. We got so close. And then power said, hold it, this thing's getting out of control. We write in the book about Lewis Powell's memo, the, fabulous, the famous memo where Lewis Powell talked. He said to wealthy people as a, as a corporate lawyer, 
said, look, you know, we've got to get involved in politics. We have to start, you know, asserting our wealth. Or the next thing you know, people like Ralph Nader and Jesse Jackson and, you know, all these radicals and all these activists, they're going to start guiding our country. And do you know what? One of the things that influenced Lewis Powell to, to be so concerned? He was from Virginia. He was very influenced by the ads on television that said smoking was dangerous for you. And, that, or ultimately, and then the, the end of tobacco advertising. And he and other people said, look, if you can force companies to stop advertising for stuff just because it kills them, um, the next thing you know, they're going to be saying that we got a right to health care, we have a right to food, or we have, you know, that, that we're human beings. Everybody's a human being. We got to fight them against that. We got to do something about that. And we have seen over the last 40 years a diminution of democracy in America. The problem is now we are at a point where our democracy is not sufficiently vibrant and, and functional to deal with the, change, the radical economic changes that are coming our way. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast with new episodes coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.